The test is simple. Remove your hand from the box, and you die. That's no box. Pain. No need to call the guards. Your mother stands behind that door. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings obliteration. Sammy and I've been a long king John. Talking about movies is their only job. So Party, 32 Fans Podcast, where we discuss all things movies, past, present, and occasionally future. And as we promised, we have entered the witching hour of the year for <laughs> movies. My name is Sammy Chester. And I'm John Gilpatrick. And today we are going to be talking about the movies from October 2021, a special segment exclusively to Dune. One of the bigger movies of the year. Obstinensky, our other host, had a bit too much spice from the planet Arrakis. It's cocaine. To, yeah, yeah. To, to join us tonight. But I mentioned Witching Hour, John, because not only did we expect in September that October would bring the heat, a level of quality movies we hadn't seen until now. There's all sorts of witching elements to, to Dune, which uh, we'll get into hopefully. The Witching Hour. Become wins, wins become losses. And losses become wins. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. When flops become hits and down. hits become flops. 2021 stands up on the skyscrapers, beats its chest and says, I too am a year of great movies. Because I think that's what October finally allowed us to uh, proclaim from the rooftops. Before we go any farther, let me introduce our guest. Since a freelance author whose bylines can be found on Dismember Online and the Collinsport Historical Society, we infamously enlisted Justin in December 2019 when at the time there will be pod needed someone that was an expert in all things Jewish, New York, and gambling and sports mm. to discuss uncut gems. I just talked about Gaspard No the entire time. Exactly. Well, now we decided <laughs> that we needed an expert for another subject. And so we turned again to our formerly uncut gems expert, now hopefully sci-fi and dune <laughs> expert, Justin Parker. Justin, thank you so much for joining us. Usually my experience in talking about Dune with people is kind of a very negative, please, sir, this is a Wendy's energy because <laughs> I've, I've been reading Dune since 1999 when I was 11 years old. I first started reading the Dune books. That was and just, that's like when they started making a TV show about it? Is that what introduced well, the, it to you? Or? My four big fandoms, I think, just were, were very foundational to me were like Lord of the Rings, Dune, Stephen King's Dark Tower, and Doctor Who. And I kind of discovered them all basically one after the other. And Dune was my was my big post-Lord of the Rings thing. And they started releasing these prequel books by Frank Herbert's son, Brian Herbert, and sci-fi author Kevin J. Anderson. And these are all the books that take place before Dune. So before those came out, I read all of the Dune books, which are, there's six. Just mentioning sort of the mythology of the Dune books, it does remind me a bit, of course, of Wizard of Oz, the inaugural novel, but there's actually a whole mythology yes, and series absolutely. of books behind it. The movie really is just based upon, or presumably will be based upon, the first novel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's roughly about the first 250 pages of the first book, which is just called Dune. I was convinced, being such a big Dune person, I was like, this is going to be terrible. Right. Like people are going to it's going to be really weird and it's going to be really insular and people are going to be like resoundingly no thanks. But then I saw it and I, people genuinely responding to it that had never really even cracked a single Dune book. And now my mom knows who Paul Atreides is and like people at my bus stop are talking about sandworms. Like it's incredible to me that something so dorky has caught on so well. Before we go too much more into Dune, we did want to give some love to any of the other big hits or misses from the month of October. Anything else from the past year that we caught up with this month? Three, I think, of the big movies of October include Ridley Scott's The Last Duel, Wes Anderson's mm -hmm. The French Dispatch, and Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho. Those three actually didn't have a chance to catch up with. I think at least Anderson's and Edgar Wright's are coming out on streaming 
in November. I unfortunately didn't get a chance to see any of those. I live in a piss pot Texas town and none of them are playing near me at the moment, even though I think Last Duel's been out for a couple of weeks now. And uh, I think uh, Last Night in Soho is, is just about to hit wide release. I'm very excited to see Last Duel especially. The later period Ridley Scott movies have just been so up my street visually and like tonally whatever he wants to do until he stops just do whatever you want buddy i'm gonna be there with bells on i did get a chance to to attend a couple of festivals and one thing that did stick out to me that should be starting to hit wider pretty soon have you guys heard of a movie called king car directed by renata pinheiro this thing is a lot but in the best possible way before I saw it, a lot of people were comparing it to Mad Max and George Miller, and it's absolutely not that energy whatsoever. It's so much weirder and cooler and queerer than I even anticipated. The logline is a kid who was born in a cab, and then he finds out that he can literally speak to cars. This, of course, naturally leads to some sort of odd anti-capitalist screed on, like, yeah, now the cars are starting to ply humanity with this weird blue antifreeze. It's got a lot going on, but it was tremendous. I saw it at Nightstream this, this year. I was pinned to my seat the entire time. I think I've even told you too much about it. Has Justin said enough to win you over for King Car? Curious about it. I'm also a little bit curious as to how it would compare to film about cars, uh, Teton, the French movie. The thing that I walked out of thinking was just like, oh, well, someone just did Cronenberg's crash, but the cars yeah, right, could right. talk to somebody. And that's And that's the energy that I just kept thinking. It's just like so many ideas, so mad about everything it's so mad about like the political climate in argentina it's so mad about the deforestation and also cars murder people and they can talk to people and they try to get people high. it's just it's bananas it's absolutely bananas i loved it the brazilian movie last year about this small village with sort of the weird sci-fi. Baccarat, Baccarat. Baccarat. <laughs> I mean, it's just me trying to get you guys more into genre. That's that's every time I come here, I'm just like, I got to get them into horror movies. I got to get them into something <laughs> weird. King Car was the one thing that as soon as I saw, I was like, I have to tell as many people about this as possible. I, I wouldn't want to start off in October uh, movie month any other way. Really also liked, I saw this at Fantasia, uh, Hellbender. Directed by Toby Poser, and this is not a bit, The Adams Family. It's it's an entire family. It's a, a husband and wife and their daughter who all star in this movie. The movie itself is about a special kind of witch called a hellbender. Every black metal cover you've ever seen, like, this is their life. Again, it feels so DIY. It feels so vital and energetic while also kind of not being as showy as i expected it to be this was another one that people were like oh man you got to see this one it's, it's it just goes so hard it's really metal at its core it's just a very simple mother daughter it's almost like an a24 movie a little bit like their kind of brand of horror where it's just very intimate close shots a lot of like uh beautiful landscapes and then just like sudden shocks of practical effects and horror in the witching hour, October feeling of the month, I actually didn't see any horror movies. So I'm glad <laughs> at least uh, one of us can put some respect on the name. King Car, I'm definitely going to check out. I saw another one called um, We're All Going to the World's Fair. It's basically filmed entirely through YouTube videos. This girl gets caught up in this big augmented reality game about the mm. World's Fair, where if you do this ritual invoking the World's Fair, then you become a character in this horror game. It seems very intimate because it's all filmed through phones and laptops and stuff like that. But again, it has like a very unexpectedly sweet story of connection and disconnection at its at its heart about how like people can find groups online and people that flock together because of horror jacob's wife i also saw that's on shutter right now with uh, barbara crampton uh which was hysterical it was a really fun horror comedy the wife of a pastor who accidentally gets turned into a vampire again you see people like barbara crampton and you have this kind of expectation like, oh, she's going to do like vampy. She's going to kind of play it a little bit broad, but it's like very straightforward. And that just makes it even funnier. I also saw this at Fantasia. Wonderful Paradise. It's the new Mahashi Yamamoto 
movie. Another one that kind of defies expectation. It starts as one thing and then ends as something completely separate. It's about this family and they're about to move into another house. The daughter decides that they should have one last party to send off the house. And in doing so, kind of attracts all of these weirdos to their house who then don't leave. That one was really funny. I don't know a lot about Mahashi Yamamoto, but he's apparently a big punk guy in the East because apparently all of his movies are like kind of like weird art films that he just makes with his buddies and bandmates. I saw the amusement park, quote unquote, new George Romero, oh, Romero movie. movie, yeah, on Shudder. And it's really weird. I'm hesitant to even call it a movie. It's just like a loose collection of weird scenes hinged around elder abuse do you guys know anything about the genesis of this movie a very little bit it was made with the backing of the church of latter-day saints with the jor- <laughs> the jor- i'm not familiar with this movie so bring me up to speed because Romero has been dead for many years no yeah so- the george romero foundation always kind of scrounging around for restored prints usually of the dead movies they found this movie called the amusement park that was kind of this weird curio that he did right before he blew up but never it never really got any distribution and it just became basically like a school film that the church of latter-day saints would show in churches to people and it's this horrifying like jangly handheld movie about this guy who goes to like a fictitious amusement park all the tickets they have to be gained by you give them like priceless heirlooms or families will come with their elders already dressed up in pine boxes and then just leave them in the middle of the amusement park and then just go to the amusement park. So it's all this weird nightmare imagery that he just kind of (laughs) loosely connects with the narrative. It's absolutely the definition of a left-handed movie where you can clearly tell that it's George Romero, but also it's not a version of George Romero that you've ever experienced before. I don't think I would have watched it unless I got uh, signed for it for work. John, were you also on a, on a horror bent uh, this October? The horror that I experienced <laughs> in October was moving. I didn't get to any horror movies. I, one movie that I, you know, both you and I caught up with, Sammy, was called Nine Days. Do you want to mm. talk a little bit about Nine Days? Nine Days is one of my favorite <laughs> movies of the year. I'll put it that way. Yeah, I really liked it too. Oh. I'm like borderline hesitant to say too, too much about it because I yeah. think you had first teed me up about it when this kind of came out, I think earlier in the year. One of the big loves of Sundance, so it got a lot of- And this is where I feel like I've heard it because this is the big actor movie, right? Winston Winston Duke Duke. is the the lead. He's joined by Benedict Wong, plays you know a pretty big part. Tony Hale from uh, Arrested Mm -hmm. Development Veep is in there. Um, Zazie Beetz has a pretty important role. Every actor in the movie, I think this is the best role they've ever had on screen. Actors showcase. It's all of these people that you wouldn't expect doing a dramatic thing, doing a dramatic thing. I don't know what to expect from Winston Duke. John, I kind of know him as that random guy in Wakanda. (laughs) Who was Winston Duke? Was he in? I remember. Was he He in Us? us. Yeah. Very, very good in Us. The best way to describe is like a live action riff on Soul, the Pixar movie. I would Um, say Soul for Adults. Oh. Soul for Adults. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And it takes place in this sort of like, you know, unexplained um, middle place, let's call it. And Mm -hmm. uh, there's a man uh, who's Winston Duke and and he's watching these lives unfold of people on television screens. For some reason, they still have VHS. I feel like they should upgrade their technology in this place, but that's another conversation. Um, I would almost hesitate to say too much more because I feel like some of that... No, yeah. you're right, though. It is it is like a movie that, you know, you don't want to know too, too much about. It's like in Pixar Soul, he's screening to decide who should enter life. That's hysterical that you guys say that because I got none of that from the trailer that I saw. Sony Pictures Classics bought it out of Sundance. It's probably a hard movie to sell, you know, if it has much success this year, whether it be box office or words or anything like that, it's going to be on the back of, you know, word mouth definitely like a movie that in the hands of lesser actors i think doesn't work Mm. um it's very high concept really truly like had no idea what was going to happen next at every moment of the movie so and it's not this thriller mystery or something like that when you're wondering what's going to happen next right it took me as you're saying john like 30 minutes to go like oh this is what we're watching 
And then I was like, okay, now I understand sort of the plot. Maybe like we'll get to our feature. That doesn't mean the first 30 minutes didn't work for me. Everything in nine days pretty much worked for me. I really, really <laughs> liked it. To me, it's okay that for the first 30 minutes, I was like, wait, what's really going on here? I'm not quite right, sure. Yeah, you, you, you need that investment for sure. For a little while, you sort of know that it's starting at a certain point and that you have to eventually get to another point. The way it does that, I felt like was kind of inventive and a little playful. I could have told you from like minute 20 where we were going to be by minute like 80. And so I guess that would be like a, a slight criticism, but I think it, it is very slight. Like I think overall, it's definitely w- worth checking out and one of my higher recommendations of the year so far. I appreciated the movie much more 24 hours after seeing it than an hour after seeing it. And even more mm-hmm. so now, what is it? It's been like four or five days for me at this point. I dislike the cutesiness, the gags, and I felt the heavy handedness, which is to be fair, expected in more children's, uh, you know, Disney Pixar movie that Soul had for me. And since this movie is basically sold without the cutesiness, the gags and the heavy handedness, therefore this really, really worked for me. And then the second thing really is that, and this is sort of, I think what manages to salvage uh, some of the limitations that uh, John, you pointed out, which is the movie really isn't about the plot. It's entirely about the character development. Yeah. It's entirely mm-hmm. about the leads character development. You know, you kind of, and this is fine to say, like you, you kind of thinking like, oh, this movie is almost like a survivor-esque, like, you know, which of the yeah. characters will be picked? One of them says it really well. He goes like, look, I just want to win the game. I just want to be picked and I'll do what I'll do to win. It's interesting how the different uh, competitors in nine days are competing to like win because some of them are like outright competing and some of them are like, yeah. Tony Hale's sort of the very social guy who's playing a social game and being like, hey, let's just like lean back and drink beers and like, then you'll pick me. <laughs> And the other guy, one of the many, many Skarsgård brothers, I don't know if they're actually related. You know, he's all about, I'm going to like win every immunity challenge and like play this game to the bone. And again, I'm getting way out of my element talking about survival. They, just to reveal, they actually are related. Bill Skarsgård, Stellan Skarsgård, Alexander. Yeah, they're all one big, weird Swedish acting dynasty. It makes there. sense. Not only do the actors do a really good role, but they're also, I think each of them is like perfectly cast. Their oh yeah, 100%. In nine days exemplifies what I would have expected. Like Zazie Beats is like the Zazie Beats character to a T, yeah, and seriously. Tony Hale is the Tony. Yeah, and, and, and the, I agree. He could have picked any of the Scars guards probably, but like he is the guy he has to be. And so it's really the character development of Winston Duke, who I just think is remarkable in this movie. I am often a little put off by acting, which is very repressed and very sort of constrained. Uh, mm-hmm. because sometimes I feel like it's a bit of a cop-out just to be too constrained in something. But, yes. but I feel like he's physical acting very, in this movie really works. Yeah, He seems like he's definitely very aware of his own physicality and really knows how to turn that. Us is a tremendous example of how he juggles his own affability and threatening this within scene. Like a teddy bear one moment, he's a scary ah, presence. He's oh, incredibly so repressed. Good. Yeah, I mean, Winston Duke is uh, it's a showcase for how you can act bodily force. Edson Oda, the Brazilian-Japanese director, has never made a movie yeah. before. This is his first movie, which is oh, incredible. Love you know, that. You know, sometimes creative forces, their first movie maybe actually will be one of their better ones. There's a really sobering backstory to this. He had an influential uncle who committed suicide when he was a child, and that sort of is what shaped oh, wow. this movie. That is in no way obvious from the movie this movie is not grim movie john one last thing i'll share this is probably very inside baseball nine days in judaism is a term for literally nine calendar days that take place in august september and there are days of like extra mourning on the religious calendar when you're supposed mm-hmm. to refrain mm-hmm. from swimming and you know going seeing movies live and you know doing sort of more festive activity remembering tragedies of the past i don't think you know our brazilian japanese director was uh, seeking to <laughs> invoke that whatsoever. We all bring our own uh, our own biases, so I appreciate it. So I'll take any movie that has any sort of metaphysical uh, subtext on the page or off, like, it, honestly. It, it, not so subtextual here. So That's no, like man. the text, yeah. Sammy, do you have any other October films that you wanted to give a shout out to? Yeah. One, John, I thought this was going to be your horror movie. I won't discuss it anymore. But for me, the, the, the most horrible experience probably I had in the movie theaters in October was the James Bond movie, which I actually caught in September. Uh, to me, it was a complete miss. It was one of the worst James Bond movies I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> but uh, I urge people not to see it then. I know, John, you were not going to take my advice because you did catch up with it, right? 
I did. I'm definitely not as down on it as you were and rewatched, I should say, all the, the Craig movies, movies before yeah. this <laughs> one. Definitely better than Quantum Solace and Spectre for me, like no doubt about it. To the extent No Time to Die works, it really works in that MCU serialization. Yeah, like- yeah, I agree with mm-hmm. you there. I was held back. A lot was like too outlandish. Didn't feel like a James Bond movie. It felt like something more out of a Fast and Furious movie. Yeah. Didn't oh, have kind boy. of the muscular charisma not not to speak ill of daniel craig's physique he's more suave and vin diesel is more brute strength and i felt like that was sort of the energy that this movie needed it was a little bit of a weird amalgam of those two i think spaces so yeah i'm also in the bag for pretty much anything james bond you know we'll talk a little bit about dune being uh elemental for you justin but for me james bond in terms of coming to cinema no i get it that was like it for me hard for me to like really dislike one of these movies like a lot of these kind of big mcu fast and furious you know i think the villain is always just so essential yeah i I felt the villain was he was more comfortable in an Austin Powers movie without the sort of fun element <laughs> oh, than in a James Bond movie. This movie sort of, two words you said, uh, John capture everything. I just didn't feel. And maybe if I would have stacked the previous Daniel Craig's the week before, then this would have worked mm-hmm. as a coda. But when they're doing all the soaring music in the last act of uh, the recent James Bond and trying to make you really care by music, it just didn't work for me whatsoever. I was in the theater and I sat back being like, Am I supposed to be feeling anything now as these missiles <laughs> rain down on the hero? Because I, I feel nothing. And because this movie needed you to emotionally really, really care and be sad. It made me pine for the old bad Pierce Brosnan. It's not Goldeneye, but the bad Pierce Brosnan. <laughs> where like, even when Pierce Brosnan went out, he went out skiing down an avalanche, going out of James Bond in the most over-the-top James Bondy way. And like, there's something to be said for that. I don't think he knew that it was his <laughs> <Yeah>. last car. <laughs> you gotta hand Purvis and Wade those walking papers. They've they've written too many of these movies. You, you gotta get them. You gotta get them out of there. I do hope when they do the new Bond, whatever that will be in a few years' time, they don't have to sort of explain it. They bring back the yeah, same cue. They bring back the same mm-hmm. end. They bring back mm-hmm. the same established, like, what's her name? Money Penny. They, they bring back the same yes. actors yeah, in yeah, the yeah. same roles, just like they used to always do for Q. Q was always Q, despite the fact that James Bond kept changing the actor. And so yeah. I hope they just introduce, so to speak, a new James Bond without having to, like, say, oh, I'm the long lost son of Daniel Craig. I, I hope they just kind of run with that because I think that's like the spirit to me of James Bond, which he's always there, uh, regardless of gender, regardless of ethnicity, et cetera, et cetera. Well, boys, I got great news for you. Doctor Who still exists. So if you just come on over to Doctor Who, it's give you the same experience with the, the, even more of the fandom drama. There's always another Doctor Who. Let me share a few of the movies I saw though in October before we get to our big feature. Truffle Hunters. It's a documentary that's gotten rave reviews. I've heard about this. It's about old men in Northern Italy and their dogs looking for rare black truffles. The movie is weirdly sort of similar to one of the best documentaries I've ever seen in my life, which was 2019's Honeyland. That was about an old Macedonian lady lady harvesting wild honey. Honeyland is a titan, far, far better than this movie. Truffle Hunters has really fun scenes about man and dog. And the old men are just so cute and so silly sometimes. You know, it's sort of a fun time. You can put it on in the background if you read subtitles while you work. Another one from Europe, a German movie, is called I'm Your Man. I'm Your Man is now my favorite movie in 2021, which is about a museum researcher lady who has complicated romance. Because if you remember, John, we had Undine. Came out earlier this year. Brother to uh, Luca. Mermaid Man. (laughs) I'm Your Man is very different. It's a Berlin museum lady like Undine who is having trouble falling in love. And then she signs up to participate in an experiment to live with a humanoid robot that has been designed to be her perfect boyfriend. This is Dan Stevens, correct? Exactly. Dan Stevens is such a robot. Talk talk about Doctor Who. I should have uh, transitioned right into here from- uh, Uh, Dan Dan Stevens would be a tremendous Doctor Who. And I like Dan Stevens a lot. Because he's Uh, a robot. He looks like a robot. In this movie, he plays a robot. My wife and I, for spooky season, uh, quote unquote, we rewatched The Guest, which Mm. is a tremendous use of Dan Stevens because he's just like a very weird kind of smiling mannequin that just like looks hot in like bisexual lighting. Yeah, he's a Ken doll who has a very still face and very large blue eyes. And so he, mm-hmm. he very yes, much yes, can yeah. play a robot, a mannequin, whatever. The reason I recommend this is not only the performances are nice, it doesn't try to be anything like her mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, 
movies about falling in love with a, a robot. It does have a lot of unique insight within the rom-com genre into relationships and, and you know, what you're looking for in a partner. It's not a heavy movie whatsoever. It's a rom-com. It's on Netflix as well, but a much harder relationship movie would be Test Pattern. Couple in Texas and Austin, their relationship is put to the test when the police and the medical system failed to support them after the girlfriend uh, was raped. It's a much harder movie, of course, than I'm Your Man. It's not a rom- It's not a comedy. Really a movie, as far as I'm concerned, about the tensions that a couple have in crisis. It reminded me in much more extreme ways at times of the relationship pressures my wife and I have faced during our two years in going fertility treatment. I, I want to be very careful saying that. I'm not comparing fertility treatment to what a couple has to do when they're looking for a rape kit in a hospital. But to the extent that a couple are going through the hospital system, which can often be inefficient and uncaring, and they're also that's putting a ton of pressure on them, their relationship, that's what this movie really captures. I've read some reviews saying they think there's a lot of racial messages in the movie. I didn't capture that as much. The boyfriend is white. The girlfriend is black. The movie maybe doesn't work for me as much. And maybe, Justin, you can speak to this. The boyfriend goes so far acting like a dick sometimes that I was like, no way you could do that and still be dating someone. And number two, he is so out of his league. The girlfriend who I'm not familiar with the actress, she is a bombshell. She's absolutely beautiful. In the movie, she's like a corporate who's basically paying for their home. And he's like a semi-employed tattoo artist. Now, maybe that's an Austin, Texas thing where you have these oh, like- that, Yeah, that absolutely you is have these like <laughs> You have these like loser boyfriends who are way out of their league batting like- Yes, you know, yes, like, yes, yes, yes. He has the personality of a two and maybe the looks of a three and a half, if I'm generous. And she's, <laughs> and she's a 10 out of 10. She has like a wonderful personality. She's smoking and is, you know, like paying for everything that they have. And she's just really fun and cool. It didn't work for me so much. The fact that I was like, how is this amazing woman with this loser dude? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's but, a weird sitcom paradox. Yeah. Or it's like, yeah, but that that absolutely is an Austin thing. There's a lot of like okay. scuzzy session musicians that are also usually in relationships with people far, far without of their scale. Like, <laughs> okay. I figured that might just be maybe a, an Austin thing and, you know, I wasn't appreciating. But I would encourage people to check out Test Pattern. There Will Be Pod before it was There Will Be Pod was a multi-movie fan podcast. As uh, loyal listeners may know, we did an episode way back in the beginning of 2019 on our favorite movies ever made about or in Malta. And the most Malta movie of all time came out this month, and it's called The Grand Duke of Corsica. Timothy Spall, who I'm not so familiar with, but I know he's been in a lot of horror movies. He was in the Harry Potter franchise. Wormtail. He's the best part of this movie. He plays a famous architect that won't suffer fools. He's constantly insulting people. If you, The trailer's worth watching. It doesn't give anything away. And in the trailer, it's just him mocking people left and right. He finds himself in Malta designing a mausoleum for a dying strange billionaire while a pandemic wrecks the island, including killing the billionaire. And the two of them are also reflecting on the life of St. Francis, the middle-aged saint from uh, Italy. A lot of like eyes wide shut in this Timothy Spall puts on a mask and goes to like a billionaire's orgy. Timothy Spall the whole time is just dripping disgust for everything he sees, which his face, (laughs) maybe doesn't surprise you if you know Timothy Spall. Um, Yeah, he's got one of those amazing faces. I had fun. The movie doesn't quite work. I read that it's also a first time director. The movie looks beautiful because it's just everywhere around Malta. And Timothy Spall is really fun to hang out with. A lot of the architecture that his character designs are either like vagina metaphors or or penis metaphors. (laughs) And so like a few different like clients call him out on that. And he just looks at them and he says like, oh, you have something against the cock or like, like he's very coarse. That part is, is fun and just sort of how he's tearing through society. The more it gets into sort of the nuttiness and St. Francis, it has all these weird callbacks. It kind of lost me at some point, but I'd recommend to not only Malta fans, but mausoleum fans, architecture fans. <laughs> you, you mausoleum diehards yeah. out there. Timothy Spall's really good in all the, he's in all the Mike Lee movies. Yeah. Um, he's usually all up and down the West End or, or kind of like off, off, off quote their, their Broadway. He's always on sure. the stage thing. Two cop movies, Cop Shop and Raging Fire. One of these is one of my favorite watches of the year. And the other one is the most stereotypical movie I've ever seen of its genre. Cop Shop is about a con man played by Frank Grillo and a hitman who both find themselves locked up in a small town jail with only a cool-headed rookie female cop left to deal with them with the complete bloody chaos that ensues. I won't spoil to say a few other hitmen show up as well who are completely bonkers and just start killing people left and right. 
the movie is too bloody for me. I'm not such a horror guy and people get chopped up in a lot of ways. Everyone basically gets killed in this movie pretty much. It is so much fun. It is such a 90s style. Movies don't do this enough. Roger Altman was famous for this, which is that in Cop Shop, characters are often speaking over each other, yelling and speaking at the same time because things get very tense and they're arguing with each other. And I feel that happens in real life. I mean, it happens on podcasts where- Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You know, you're talking at the same time. (laughs) Cop Shop does it, but does it sort of in a really fun style. The other thing that Cop Shop does so well is they make fun of a lot of movies. They make fun of the MCU. They make fun of Thor. They make fun of Tom Cruise in a few of his movies, including Last Samurai. It's so over the top. The third act is just so silly, but it's like silly and like, again, a 90s action style movie. It's the most 90s action style movie I've seen in the last 20 years. We're in 2021 <laughs> somehow, fully in the 90s in a, in a good way. You know, I would urge everyone to see Cop Shop. I think it came and went too quickly. Much more over the top. This is the one hits every stereotype possible. Raging Fire, the most Hong Kong police action flick I've ever seen. Every single association you have for any Jackie Chan movie before he became really famous, any like, again, any Hong Kong action we've ever seen is in this movie. And maybe that makes sense because the director, Benny Chan, who died during the making of the movie, not because of the making of the movie, he got cancer, unfortunately, and he died in the end of 2020. Uh, he's directed a lot of the classic Hong Kong action flicks, including a lot of the Jackie Chans. And so a lot of what we associate, and I'll just give you some examples. The final face-off is in a church with a lot of stained glass and angelic statues. There's a lot of slow panning with rock music. There's a lot of sound effects of punching and kicking. The hero at some point during a traffic chase has to risk his life to save a beautiful child who's about to be hit by an out-of-control semi-truck. Well, naturally. The plot is, of course, about former best friend cops who now are seeking revenge on each other for various reasons. Um, Mm -hmm. The plot is completely dumb. People were comparing it to Heat, I saw in that like the final act is sort of they rob a bank and then they're just like in the street. But like the bad guys are portrayed as super brilliant ex-cops who know how to do everything. And yet they're like final bank robbery is just so dumb. They're like, okay, we're going to steal from a (laughs) bank in Hong Kong, which is an island. And then we're just going to run out into this busy street and shoot a bunch of police. And that's like their escape plot. (laughs) The plot is completely irrelevant here. The reason I would recommend the movie is that it has absolutely amazing fights. It really does. I mean, you watch the movie and you're like, Oh, like that's what a really good fight scene is after seeing a lot of MCU. Beautiful to watch the fight scenes. The director, you know, obviously before he he died, it's everything he knows how to do, doing really, really well. Which one of those was more convincing for you, John or Justin? Cop Shop or Raging Fire? Cop shop. See, and I think I've heard something about Raging Fire because also isn't this the same guy that directed Police Story? Yeah. I love me some Frank Grillo, so I'm definitely going to see Cop Shop as well. Yeah. Both of these movies I was giggling in the third act because... That fun and still technically sound resurgence of the canon film VHS spinner rack. I'm genuinely glad that kind of a lot of this like direct-to-video energy is still kind of bleeding into to bigger movies like this. Very last movie I wanted to share, The Spine of Night, my contribution to this Witching Hour episode. It is a rotoscope <laughs> cartoon. Rotoscope means animation that is traced over live action footage. And The Spine of Night is that cartoon about ultra-violent figures battling it out in some sort of middle-age fantastical type setting. Now, I do not recommend The Spine of Night to 99% of people. Um, This might be more Justin's world and maybe, you know, therefore you can swing on it. I think for me, the major problem with The Spine of Night is not only the rotoscoping, but when I compare, rotoscope is like a, what is it? A 60s, 70s style animation Yes, uh, yeah, yeah. It was was developed first in the 50s and then gained prominence in the 60s and 70s with kind of like hate Ashbury documentary. Uh, Ralph Bakshi used it a a lot uh, during his Lord of the Rings and kind of uh, some of his other earlier... I've seen some of Ralph Bakshi's stuff, including Mm. Lord of the Rings, and frankly, I find all of it pretty drab and boring. But I think the problem today is, Justin, you're the one who got me on to Love, Sex, and Robots, the Netflix cartoon series, which now has two seasons, I think. And when you compare the incredible, not only animation in contemporary animation, but also the imagination in contemporary Mm -hmm. animation... And the problem in the spine of night is that the animation is so flat because rotoscope is often just leads to a very flat style. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. script is so bad. It's almost like, again, <laughs> it's like intentionally bad maybe. And then the plot is so threadbare that it's very underwhelming despite the fact that it has like a who's who of great voice mm-hmm. actors. Really, the voice actors are really fun. The vibe is often very fun. It's way too violent again for my taste. I mean, it has a little bit of that Castlevania. If you've watched that show on Netflix, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it kind of leans into that a bit in terms of like 
but it's even more like more like brains are being split open all the time in the sound of night. Uh, sorry, the spine of night. The last thing I'll say touches on what you had said, Justin, which is Rolf Bakshi, because it reminded me, of course, of Rolf Bakshi's most famous rotoscope cartoon, which is Lord of the Rings, which is in mm-hmm. 1978, as Justin was referencing, Rolf Bakshi famously made a rotoscope cartoon of the first half, part one, of Lord of the Rings. He planned on making a sequel, but he never got the studio financing to do so. So to this day, if you want to sit down with a bag of popcorn and watch a cartoon version of Lord of the Rings, all you have is part one of what was supposed to be a two-parter of an epic sci-fi so, fantasy novel. So weird. And therefore, that may be the best way to start talking about another sci-fi novel-inspired part one, which is, of course, our feature for the month of October. My planet Arrakis is so beautiful when the sun is low. Rolling over the sands, you can see spice in the air. John, as we get deep into the desert now, give us your synopsis of this movie. <laughs> we have Justin, a super fan, as he was saying at the top of the episode. I've read the original book. I've read some of the sequels. I'm familiar with sort of with the universe, seen some of the, you know, the previous movies. John, mm-hmm. you can maybe share, but I, you know, you're more of a newbie. Give us your synopsis, John. This is amazing. By far the like least qualified person to give a synopsis. I will do my best. <laughs> you know, what did you see? We're like, what, 10,000 years in the future. Mm-hmm. And uh, synopsis, our... synopsis, please, sir. <laughs> there's like a, a planet that is like all desert, and there's some people that live there, and Check. there's a spice that's like floating in the air that's like the most valuable commodity there is. Um, mm-hmm. And it allows them to tr- basically make space travel a lot easier. There's just a, a bunch of like sort of powerful families who are warring over control of the spice. There's like a lot of kind of political machinations going on between them all that culminates in, uh, you know, a a pretty fierce battle on the planet. There's really, really big worms. Pretty fair. Check, check, check. This is a movie based on a book that itself was inspired by a movie, which is the book Dune was inspired by the classic 1962 Lawrence of Arabia. And both the book and the movie were considered hugely influential in their own, you know, spheres, Dune the book and Lawrence of Arabia the movie, but there's more. The new Dune movie is also influenced by a previous movie version, David Lynch's 1984 widely considered failure, and it's also influenced by a fantastical failed attempt to make a Dune movie in the 1970s by the Gonzo director Alexander Jodorowsky. And somewhat like John was saying earlier about Goldeneye and the way that many people in our generation encountered James Bond through the N64 video game, One of the most influential computer games of all time is likewise part of this canon because in 1992, the first real-time strategy game called Dune 2. Dune 2000. And Dune also, you know, probably introduced many people in some way to this universe. I'll put aside, it's a fascinating, you can find it on YouTube, why the very first real-time strategy game was called Dune 2 because there was no Dune part one, suffice to say. And it's a fantastic legal story. My point is that there is loads and loads of creative backstory to the current movie. And this is before we even get into the supposedly incomprehensible, very obtuse mythology of the actual in-story universe. So there's tons of real-world creative backstory. There's tons of in-world. John was referencing, you know, 10,000 years of stuff to dig through. And yet, to me, the most relevant question here before anything else, before we touch on any of that sort of background, is does this movie work on its own terms? Does this movie work to sit down, as John did, I think, the best of the three of us, and to say, I want to see a big blockbuster. I like the director, Denis Villeneuve. And did Dennis Villeneuve provide me a great movie? We were, we were talking a little bit before we, we started recording. Jealous. For the first 20 plus minutes of the movie, I wasn't really on board. It felt very chopped. Mm. It felt sort of Villeneuve was checking off the boxes quickly, being like, here's this, there's that, this planet, yes. touch this, look at this scene, look at this spaceship. And mm-hmm. 30 minutes in the movie settled down when Paul, I guess, was getting tortured. And then like it kind of went from there. I'm genuinely shocked at how much it does work as a adaptation, truly. Genuinely still struck how well it threads the needle between being user-friendly and crazy insolent. There's a lot of stuff in this. If you're coming to it cold, you have absolutely no context for it. 
And this movie gives not a single shit about giving you that context. It's just going forward. If you buy the ticket, you're going to take the ride. Even just like sitting it, I was just like, this is working. It's really working. Three things that didn't work for me. One is that I feel a lot of the characters outside of Paul, outside of the lead played by Timothy Chalamet, they feel very rushed. And for such a long movie, it's weird that a lot of the side characters seem to be like showing up saying something, smirking, and then like jumping off screen. I think Jason Mm -hmm. Momoa to me is the most striking example of someone who, despite how much time he gets relative to others and how charismatic he is, he was so rushed. I didn't have a chance to connect with his character. The Baron is somewhere in the middle in the fact that he doesn't get much time, but it sort of works, but at the same time, I just felt like, who is this guy? What's he popping out of the, literally the goo for? And then the character, <laughs> the only side character where I think completely was flushed out and a credit, I don't know whether to her, to the script, is the lady who plays the ecologist on Dune, the female, uh, like, Dr. Kynes. Yeah. Yeah, so, I thought she was very interesting. And I was just really jazzed watching it. I really loved it. I immediately went and watched the 1984 Dune, which I had never seen. Which is very different movie a lot less that was my first that was my very first david lynch movie i had no idea who david lynch was i asked for the sci-fi channel miniseries of dune which is also very good for and they gave you david lynch and they went to hastings r.i.p hastings they bought the david lynch dune which is (laughs) insane to give a 12 year old and i watched the absolute piss out of that thing and then that that turned me on to david lynch i, I saw twin peaks and all the stuff after that did you appreciate the david the, the lynch movie oh the david lynch movie i did not think was very good <laughs> but i appreciated it from a campy perspective it was fun not unwatched it was bad it's a weird watchable. Movie. it is a weird weird movie. yeah but some of what sammy said mentioned the jason momoa character not being fleshed out he was fun in the lynch version that character is very not fleshed out comical watching it and my guess is justin people were probably very upset that that character did not get his just desserts in the lynch version of the movie funny enough you say that the lynch Uh version is actually a note for note adaptation of duncan's whole contribution to the first book Okay, he that's, up, okay, that's he very interesting then. and he gets fucking murdered. Okay, <laughs> wow. Huh. Duncan becomes more heavy presence throughout some of the later books. I was genuinely interested that Momoa brings so much to it. On the page, he's very much just cocksure, swordsman, Errol Flynn sort of thing. And then Momoa gets a hold of him and then take, brings this whole paternal element. That was Absolutely. interesting to me. Because the casting of Momoa, I maybe just expected a bit more. I'll agree with you guys definitely think some characters got the short shrift just because yeah. it's such a streamlined version of the first half of the book that a lot of that stuff just kind of has to get paired off like there's there's all this stuff with dr yui for Hawat, and and even there's an entire subplot with gurney that they filmed but they ended up cutting that diehards are kind of mad oscar isaac I, maybe he's oh. the most talented actor of anyone in this mm-hmm. movie just based on talent that we've seen him in other stuff. He does what he can, but I felt his character, there's just not much there. It's the same thing on the page in the book too. Leto is very much the kind of, he's a stoic. Yeah, I'm not gonna use mediocre source material because like in Game of Thrones, the TV show at its peak managed to make characters much more fleshed out. And that's the that's what we get when you go on screen Absolutely. and you give an actor really bring to life, even the best writers, or maybe just not always the best writers were able to accomplish on the page. So John, mm. do you, are you agreeing with my criticism? Some characters, they're almost just there to be like, hello, I'm a character, goodbye. Most egregious example of that was Zendaya. A lot of that has to do with the fact that we got half of the story. Zendaya is not I- really in this movie probably the pitch to some of these bigger character actors or sort of these bigger names is that you're going to get so much to do in part two. It's so streamlined. It's so concentrated on making sure that it sells the world more than it's selling the cast. Yeah, and I kind of I think, think I right. kind of, that's a little bit more of a, yeah. of a complaint that I have. The, the biggest flaw in this movie for me probably is that I just felt there wasn't enough dramatic tension. And I'll explain what I mean. Mm-hmm. The dramatic I think tension- I, I see where you're coming from there. The dramatic tension is that, <laughs> uh-oh, Emperor and his evil Baron are about to kill all these people who are growing to love. And I guess that's supposed to be sort of the tension. And they do mm-hmm. have that here, but I can tell you, and you know, without going too much into at this point, the book and the Lynch movie, the major, major dramatic tension 
in both the original source material and the, so to speak, original movie is who is the traitor? Because in mm -hmm. the source material, so, they understand, okay, we have a traitor in our midst. We have to find out who the traitor is. And then that tension of who is the traitor, which one of these nice faces, is it Duncan Idaho? Mm -hmm. Is it, uh, I don't remember any of the other names. Is it Jessica? Is it Paul's mother, who's part of this like mm -hmm. evil witchy cabal who are mysterious and up to their own devices, you know? Who is the traitor? And a lot of the content, and again, the dramatic tension in the book and in the Lynch movie for the first you know quarter of the Lynch movie in the first quarter half of the book, who is the traitor? Because they, they have to figure that out because it's hinted at in this movie sort of, and in the book it's, mm -hmm. as, as I recall, more obvious that the Duke knows that basically he's being set up to fail. Tension of who is the traitor, we must find out the traitor, is underplayed so heavily here and maybe Justin referenced this when he said further material left on the cutting room floor to flesh out the role of the traitor and to flesh out maybe yes. the traitor's role mm -hmm. with, with the Duke, you know, Oscar Isaac's character. And yet I can I can just tell you, uh, John, that who is the traitor continues as a dramatic uh, plot point through the rest of the second half of the book source material. This isn't really spoiling, I think, to say in the book, most people think Jessica, the mom, is the traitor because she comes from that weird witch thing and she's a concubine, she's not a full mother and, you know, she wasn't really supposed to have a son. Rebecca's sort of set up for the reader to say like, oh, okay, maybe Paul's mom is the traitor. Mm -hmm. And this movie just doesn't do much with that. I mean, when you find out who the traitor is, you're just kind of like, oh, okay, why not? And they have a passing yeah. line that as Justin said, only book readers will know, which is the reason it was impossible to ever suspect that this guy was the traitor is because of his like imperial training. That to me is really missing here. And it also, it's literally missing also in that the reason that the big final attack is so successful is literally because the traitor does something. And yet the entire role of the traitor, the tension, again, I'm talking about dramatic tension. I'm not talking about plot point particularly. It robs the movie of a certain thrust. That to me didn't capture my attention all like that character didn't really make a huge mark it didn't need to be a, there was a traitor it could have just been well they decided to attack us today yeah. and i did get the oscar isaac knows we're being set up that we're this is meant to fail the dramatic tension was really something else entirely and this is one of the reasons why people keep coming back to this as like, such a rich text just the whole thing with paul and is he sort of the chosen one and yeah. mm -hmm. the reason why i felt so compelled by that i think is because the first particular scene that really grabbed my attention was the little thumb needle um to his temple with, with right with uh Char charlotte gainsburg i was like kind of like on the periphery of this thing, admiring it visually, I think, and wondering, is this gonna be impenetrable to me? And then that scene came along and it was very visceral. For me, it was like every time we came back to that, the characters that touched on that question, mm -hmm. I was most compelled. John, you're a thousand percent right. I think that is the dramatic tension the movie goes with, which is, is mm -hmm. he really the Messiah? Why yes. is there a Messiah? Yeah, yeah. And the problem with making that your dramatic tension is, that is really tension, which is only fulfilled in the rest of the movie that we don't get to I see. I agree. So that sets you up. <laughs> mm -hmm. That sets you yep. up for sort of mm -hmm. what most people have said is the, the problem with this movie. When you make that your dramatic tension, is he really the Messiah? You're set up for the fact that you need the second half of the movie. And if you do what the book and the Lynch movie do, which is you play up this whole Game of Thrones house first house rivalry and mm -hmm. there's a traitor yes. in your midst, it allows the first movie to sort of breathe with its own tension. I think definitely because it is so streamlined it's like you were saying sam it's just like you have to snap off some of those story sticks like you can't have so much that's bogging down what he thinks metaphysically is the most interesting part because you can definitely see that all of their focus is very much on all of the world building stuff yeah and because so you lose a lot of these more meaty plots that the book can can definitely take fuller advantage to I'm not concerned, oh, as a book reader, something I liked at plot point was missing. I'm concerned right, right. as a movie watcher, does that end up not giving us enough dramatic attention? But I think the things that it does well, the world building, selling the ecology of Arrakis, kind of the getting its real estate very precise in terms of which planets we're on, how each planet looks. Like, yeah. And also I was very surprised that it was as weird as, as it was because, yeah. uh, it doesn't, it definitely doesn't over explain a lot of stuff, but it absolutely presents you with something. It lets you make your own decision about it. And then it just kind of goes on. 
Yeah. And that, that I think is kind of one of its great strengths is that it's selling the book's thesis, the fact that humanity has specialized because of Spice and have kind of branched off in a way in which they don't need machines anymore because of Spice. But you lose a lot of the kind of small moments in between a lot of these big metaphysical things that definitely sell their personalities a little bit more. Justin mentioned there was a lot of movie film that hit the cutting room floor that might come back in, a, in you know part two. What do you make of some of the choice of the small scenes that were included? And like, what do you make of why they were included? The one that really jumps to mind, I don't know, Justin, if you can comment if this was in the book or the Lynch or not. There's this fairly extended scene where Paul is just gabbing away with a gardener about why the gardener puts so much water into these palm trees. Then we later see that the trees are burning when the Harkonnen attack. Mm -hmm. What do you make of the choice of certain small scenes like that? Like, why were they included? That scene is in the book. In the book, it's played between um, Jessica, Paul, and the housekeeper, shout out Mapes, who's a fairly big character in the first half of the book. Probably a lot of that stuff is just like, you have to temper all of this world building with character stuff, because if you don't, People are not going to care about these characters and they're they're not going to want to follow Paul into the desert after we lose all of these people. The book definitely does this a little bit better in that one, because it's prose and there's a little bit of room to breathe narratively and, and characterization wise. But also you're, you're leading with these huge ideas, like all of this stuff, why the Atreides and the Harkonnens have been engaged in uh, Kangle and the ancient tongue of Vendetta. Uh, which is something that Lynch obviously fucking loved because it's all over his his version. Especially in this one, the decision was definitely seemed like it was made. We have to give them a base amount of knowledge about the planets, the houses, and the characters. Kind of felt the same way in that first like 20 to 30 minutes. I was just like, this is a lot of shoe leather that a lot of people are probably glazing over right now. But then once they actually start to kick up, and you get to live a little bit more with these characters, mm. it, it definitely comes alive more. And yeah, it's kind of front-loaded, and yeah, it's pretty exposition-heavy, but god damn, is it good to look at. It's just weird and really well-acted, and I kind of, like you were saying with Oscar Isaac, it's in the hands of people that can definitely kind of zhuzh it up a little bit more from like kind of the dry, very kind of sartorial, it's kind of stately personas that they're imbibing from the page. I have one big full-on Justin, let your dune flag fly question. I'm um, setting up my thumper for the for the loose perfect. sand, right? Bring on the biggest worm you can, baby. John, <laughs> just before we do so, how would you frame this in like Villeneuve's movies? Not like the biggest fan of his. Mm -hmm. I, I like the movies I've seen. I don't really love any of them. I loathed the Blade Runner 2049. Enjoyed Arrival pretty well. I enjoyed Sicario. I thought Prisoners was pretty good. This is, I'm tempted to say it's my favorite movie of his, even though I still like struggle with the fact it's not a complete story. Arrival and Dune, I guess part one, would be, you know, top tier Villeneuve for me. To me, Arrival is his most mesmerizing movie. It's unique in a very well-traveled space. It's beautiful, mm -hmm. the sound, the characters, the plot. I mean, Arrival to me outshines anything. Blade Runner 2049 which I really liked, by the way. One of my favorite movies of that year. I do too. Of, of I, the I, year. Really, I really, really, really like Blade Runner 2049. <laughs> yeah, I would say of the, of the movies that came out in the year 2049, so far it's my favorite. I do think that it's a lot from the, the, the mistakes of that movie because 2049 yes. is not, it has limitations, it's too fat, he pushes too much in there, and it's the closest parallel to this Dune. I agree with John in that, you know, I think Dune works much better. My impression is he sat down, he took a lot of the criticism to heart, and he really asked himself, okay, I like redoing or putting up a second version of a classic 80s uh, yeah, sci-fi. I was going to mention that. It's another hallowed uh, property. 2049, there was an easy 40 minutes that could have been chopped out. There was just like too mm -hmm. many long digressions that took us away from our otherwise were cool thematic points and beautiful visuals. And mm -hmm. in this movie, as you, Justin, as you said, like it's very, it's pared down. It's a long part one, but it's cut, cut, cut to the bone. Mm -hmm. I definitely think he probably took a fair share of lumps from 2049 and kind of uh, applied it to this because moves. It yeah. moves so quickly that you can definitely tell, okay, this one has to be the functional one. The next one is the style. The back half of the book is absolutely the weirder and more kind of bombastic old school thing. 
I really just have one broad side of a question for you, uh, Justin. And this is, again, this is moving into the deep end of Dune. So we'll pass the movie at this point. And so my God. big, big question for you, Justin, is simply, where are the camels? I do have an answer no, for that. I want to know your answer as where are the camels. Again, you know, this is a movie based on Lawrence of Arabia, and it literally has shock for shock copies of 1962 Lawrence of Arabia, except when you mm -hmm. think of Lawrence of Arabia, you think of camels walking across the desert, and this has people yes. walking across the desert and worms going across the desert. Tell me about the camels, but no, my real question is this. Why is there a claim that the Dune saga is unfilmable, it requires so much exposition, you can't put it on screen. Let's remember, this is literally a saga that was based upon a movie. So the idea that you can't translate that saga back into a movie as a starting point doesn't make sense to me. At the most minimal, you could literally just make Lawrence of Arabia with some of the sci-fi trappings that is from the book. So that's part of the question. Another part is, I would summarize the entire, you know, Dune story. So this part one and then, you know, the future part two, in a one sentence synopsis, mine would be a young prince on the run leads a persecuted native population in revolt against the corrupt forces that murdered his family. It doesn't have the B'nai Gesserit and the Kawitsata Derech and all those sort of like fun things, but like that is a very filmable classic story saga that yes. doesn't strike me as very heavy and very hard to put on screen. And, and you know, the, and I'll give like Game of Thrones for an example. I think Game of Thrones requires far more exposition than the mm -hmm. story of Dune. Mm -hmm. In Game of Thrones, you need to understand all the various houses and who are the Targaryens and, and like, what is this, what is this yes. new king, Robert Baratheon, who recently came to the throne and why is he, like, there's a ton of like exposition and context you need in Game of Thrones. And yet, yes, it was a TV series, not a movie, but like the first few episodes of Game of Thrones, they just work and they don't get bogged mm. down in this like, oh, we have to introduce this incredibly unfilmable source material novel to get people hooked. Why is there this claim that like Dune requires so much exposition and that it's unfilmable? Again, this is a story that was based on a movie. How can it be so hard to make a movie of it? I need to tweak your history just slightly. You are half correct. The David Lean definitely has a lot of like influence on Herbert, especially at the time. The big inspiration of this was that Herbert, Frank Herbert used to be a newspaper guy. And one day he got this assignment to observe a joint operation between the Department of Agriculture and the Department of Defense, who were trying to seed sand. Their entire goal was to try to figure out how to grow plants within sand. So Herbert took that assignment and then started to think, well, what would happen if there was an entire planet of sand? And what would the ecology of that planet look like? How, what plant life would be able to grow there? What sort of rock formations would they have, animals? So Herbert's entire focus, especially in the first book, is the planet Arrakis itself, and how Spice Melange has seeped its way into the Imperium in general. Oil and, and the I, desert economy and Imperial yes. Britain. And there's a lot of Joseph Campbell. There's a lot of Hero's Journey stuff. There's a lot of pulp and serial uh, influences in it as well, like uh, John Carter and stuff like that. Because also, a lot of people don't know this, but the original Dune novel wasn't a novel at all. It was a selection of stories in a science fiction magazine. So the first version of Dune is a serial basically. So I feel like a lot of people definitely get caught up in the metaphysics of it and lose sight of the fact that at its core, it's actually a pretty simple hero's journey story. Like Paul gets the call, Paul refuses the call, Paul is driven through a series of trials and then has to claim his birthright through the golden path and the, his ascension as the Kwisatch Haderach, lead Arrakis in a not jihad. When the part two comes out, I think the context of jihad will get thrown around a bit more. Yes. And I feel like a lot of people also get so tripped up in like, oh, the, the, the Yodorowsky movie is one of the great movies never yeah. made. It would have been such this incredible experience. And like, I watched that documentary with kind of a morbid fascination because I kind of think Yodorowsky is a little overrated. And I kind of think that Dune would have sucked a lot. Yeah, I think Jodorowsky is a unfilmable type guy. I don't think Dune yes. is unfilmable. And I think yeah, he left his like... taint on Dune as this unfilmable property yes. when it really isn't. 
and like I think it bleeds directly into Lynch's the most because he's inheriting a lot of stuff from the the failed Yordowski version. Just because we're running a bit short on time, I do need 20 seconds on camels. Where are the camels? 20 okay. seconds. So, so this ties into Herbert's entire idea of Arrakis as a freestanding ecology on itself. He basically had to make a decision of whether or not he was going to make an entirely new species of animal that they all focused on or the technology of the still suit and he developed the still suit and then basically the still suit replaced the camel essentially because spice has specialized humanity in such a way a lot of livestock and other animals that used to be exports and and crops just that people would call them, yeah. they have no use for them anymore yeah. and they don't even really touch on this in the the first one which i kind of am surprised that they didn't if the production of spice is halted the this entire universe, universe yeah. collapses because they've all become dependent on the space cocaine john justin and i were wondering to the extent you're able to come in to see this first movie fresh you know not having seen anything else read anything else about dune my guess is that by the time the second movie comes around you'll probably have spoiled yourself somewhat i watched the lynch oh, movie so yeah, yeah i gotta know everything that comes uh to that point i'll i'll just sort of say like the one thing i am slightly concerned about and i thought he was he was good to very good in this movie is timothy chalamet paul absolutely um i am somewhat concerned about what the second part is going to ask him to do and that mm -hmm. he was very good for what this character was in this movie and that the growth is not something that i necessarily expect from him as an actor so mm -hmm. i'm curious to see how he ends up playing it and if that is going to all work out did you guys uh, see but... the king timothy chalamet the king? i did yeah i wonder whether that was even like why he got this role because the king is sort of similar hero's journey which is like a spoiled yes. young prince has to mm -hmm. sort of take over and become like a man and a leader of men and go to war. The king is what gives me the most confidence that Chalamet can sort of play that more hardened battle leader. Absolutely. I was very concerned about Chalamet when he first got cast, despite him being like, he's he's exactly the right age that Paul is supposed to be. He looks in the exactly book. the right age. He looks always yes. like a 14 year old. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> and I was, but I've, I've never really been like the biggest uh, Chalamet guy. I, I really, I, I think he's amazing. Lady Bird. But I also feel like Lady Bird knows that that character is an insufferable asshole. Yeah, <laughs> and, definitely. And it has Chalamet kind of act accordingly. The King, especially, because I think it's based on a Shakespeare. There's a lot, a lot of Shakespeare touchstones in Dune as well. So, John, what I was going at is that seeing the Lynch movie now, you, you'll probably be tempted maybe to read a bit of a Wikipedia. Except if you miss part one, will anyone really see part two? as freshly as they saw part one. <laughs> Hard to imagine anybody's going to be like, oh, let me check out this new Dune movie. And if they do, like, you know, contact us. I'd love to hear your story. Did it make you want to read the book, John? Like, leave it thinking like, oh, yeah, I could totally get into these. I don't read a ton of fiction, so I wouldn't say that I was, like, immediately ready to, like, you know, fire up my Amazon and, and make a make a purchase. I did a little bit of Wikipedia and the Dune mm -hmm. universe, and, like, that was, I think, the thing that uh, was so successful about his approach, which was let's let's put the world first and foremost here yes. and not necessarily yeah, yeah, characters, yeah. not necessarily story points that I was really curious about more of it. My last 10 second bit is that first venture into this podcasting, I guess, you know, blogging world. It was in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And my blog was called Kvitsa Taderach because like many ah. other things in Dune, uh, the Kvitsa Taderach, the sort of name they give to the promised Messiah, is a term from the Hebrew Bible, the shortening of the way one can move faster. Yes. So I thought it was like yes. a nice yeah. metaphorical term for a blog about how I was trying to like figure out my life as I went forward. But we can talk all about as pronounced in the book in the movie another time. John and Justin, before there was a Dune, before there was even a Lawrence of Arabia, there were classics. Any classic that you want to give a shout out? I just bought a projector. The very first movie I watched on it yes. was the original Force Majeure. It came out uh, five, six years ago. I wasn't as like impressed as maybe Av or others had led me to believe. I think it's good. I don't think it's like a must-see by any means. Not the 2021 uh, remake with Will Ferrell, of all people. I watched for the first time this month uh, Tim Burton Batman movie. <laughs> he enjoyed it. It was very funny. Jack Nicholson, you know, as the Joker, kind of don't need to say much more than that, I'm sure. I thought my Keaton was good Batman. Like, it's a fun movie. There's not really yeah, all that much to say. Just, I'm going to slightly cheat with mine. Lake of the Dead, Danish movie by Keir Bergstrom from 1958. It's basically kind of like the blueprint of the Cabin in the Woods movie. It's a, it's a story about a bunch of friends who 
get together for a fun weekend around the lake and turns out it's haunted it's black and white it's very like theatrical and very play-like but it's also it's very fun and, and light and has a very fun banter between the characters that i was that i wasn't anticipating this the second last thing that i'll leave you guys with there's a new comic book the team that gave us criminal ed brubaker sean phillips and sean phillips's son it's called reckless there have been three volumes that have come out so far. It's like a very gimmicky private detective that like if you have this phone number, you can call him and he can solve your problem. They remind me so much of picking up a detective novel and just knowing that you're going to get a complete experience that's also kind of slotted into this long running series. I even think people that don't really read comics, I think would really, really appreciate these. They're very easy to kind of like dip in and out of if you can't read them all in one sitting, but they're also short enough to be like a binge because they're only like 150, 200 pages. Reckless by Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. And Phillips Jr. John, is that the first time anyone has ever brought a knife to our Classics Corner movie gunfight? I'm Justin one-upped us because what is more classic to a movie than a <laughs> comic slash novel? Yeah, especially when you're speaking you, about Dune. Definitely, I've started to kind of become a little bit more of like my dad. I'm reading so many crime novels and I'm watching so many older movies because I'm 84 and uh, have gout. <laughs> we will bring Justin back in, in 2023. In that center, yeah. My dream come true to just talk about Dune <laughs> all the time. <laughs> yeah, well, I think you're not allowed to speak about Dune now for two years, but uh, in two years, you can bring the flag back out of the attic and fly it for you. So, Justin, thank you so much. Catch you guys soon. And don't it make my brown eyes blue? They got control over all that spice. The Baron Harkon and had in mice. Tried to kill me too. And don't it make my brown eyes, don't it make my brown eyes, don't it make my brown eyes blue. So me and my mother ran away across Dune. Got found by the Freeman not a moment too soon. They said it was easier to leave us behind, but if we went with them, it would still suit them fine. Now I'm dreaming of a huge jihad, and the Freeman all think I'm God. Maybe I do too, and don't it make my brown eyes, don't it make my brown eyes, don't it make my brown eyes blue.